from legendary locals we all know to people you should get to know. Follow Ipswich Today on your favourite app and never miss an episode or go to ipswichtoday.com.au. Coming up, what's life really like at the coalface of politics and what drives someone to run as a candidate? Keep listening for a one-on-one chat with former member for Blair, Cameron Thompson. It's an honest discussion that reveals the highs and lows of being a local member in federal parliament. It's Thursday, February 11, 2021, and I'm Alan Roebuck. Welcome to Ipswich Today, which acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which it is produced and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. Life before, during and after politics. Not many people get to experience all three firsthand. What's it really like being a politician? Ipswich local Cameron Thompson was elected to the House of Representatives in 1998 and served until 2007. He was a radio journalist before turning to politics for the Liberal Party. Cameron, thank you for joining Ipswich today. Yeah, no worries, Helen. Nice to be here. Can we start at the very beginning? You were born in Rockhampton. Is that where you grew up and went to school? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was a, it's a, a good place to grow up and uh, in many ways I think it reflects a similar kind of outlook to Ipswich and, um, yeah, a good place, uh, a lot of uh, diverse kind of industries and things and I, I, I think my background from Rocky um, fitted me well for my future uh, in the things that I did, yeah. Did you have any thoughts of entering politics while you were still at school or, say, in your early 20s? Uh, not at school. Um as soon as I got involved in journalism, uh, one of my see, I, I did a cadetship as a as a journalist with the Gladstone Observer, and then worked for the Rockhampton Morning Bulletin, and of course that brought me into contact with local politics, and you started to get a sense straight away of the tremendous um, ability that politicians have to make a difference, and that's a tremendous honour to have that to have that kind of thing put before you and straight away you start thinking as a journalist, well, gee, this problem needs to be solved. I've got to get this problem solved. Mm. And you run around as a journalist trying to get it done. But, of course, the people you need to go to are the politicians. And um, so you start thinking, well, you know, why, why should I bang on their door if I can if I could just do it myself? Things would only be fantastic. What, what, <laughs> well, as those thoughts were evolving, what other influences helped shape your views and where you were going with politics? I, yeah, look, I, I, um, I went on from uh, working at the Rocky Bully and the, the Gladstone Observer. I then went to the ABC. And the ABC took me out to um, – I was in Brisbane. I was in Mackay with the ABC, in Brisbane with the ABC. And then I went out to Longreach. And one thing that I encountered out there was like the harsh reality of – uh, you know, of the rural side of Australia where, you know, if you're a uh, someone in agriculture, the buck stops with you in every respect. Mm. And um, I, I found some really challenging and tough kind of times, which as a journalist, uh, particularly as a, a sort of a journalist in a city, you know, working in, a, in an urban environment, you sort of think, oh, well, you know, you just get onto the government and everything gets fixed. Well, in a place like that, it doesn't happen. And I started to sort of see that, well, you know, people do need to be a lot more resilient 
They need to be able to stand on their own two feet. They can't just turn to the government every time something goes wrong. And really what we need in a lot of these cases is for the government to get out of its way. Now, that marked a little bit of a a change in my, I suppose, my philosophies. Because up till then, being a journalist, you know, your background as a journalist is you tend to tend to gravitate towards causes and inevitably they tend to be of the left and I started to see a little bit of an alternative view of the world and um, and I suppose, you know, I sort of then, from then on, my politics sort of moved more to the right, you know, at least to the centre. Yes. That's where I think things need to get done. So anyway, and I went on from there to the Northern Territory and, and worked up there for the ABC in Darwin and, uh, and uh, then I started working for the Education Minister, um, uh, who was then Tom Harris. Uh, moved on from him to work for Shane Stone and at that point Shane was the minister for everything for a period and so I was you know working as a media advisor and um, uh, uh, also a uh, policy advisor in all kinds of fields everything from attorney general to uh, minerals and energy and uh, industries and development and it was just an incredible landscape that um, of possibilities that opens up, um, you know, when you can see the potential of a place like that, remote as it is, mm. and the, and the possibilities of doing something. So uh, I suppose that's a roundabout and very long way of saying that you know it's a, it was it, it's been an, it was an awakening for me across all those years about you know the tremendous potential of Australia and the tremendous potential of the regions in Australia to get something done, and then the um, the ability of people with power in politics um, to be able to make differences and to be able to have input into those things. So you certainly covered some kilometres between Queensland and the NT. When and how did you end up in Ipswich? I wound up in Ipswich um, in, uh, oh, gee, it was, it was about 1970. It was 1997. Uh, I'd been working for Joan Sheldon. I'd, I'd come down from the Northern Territory to work for, um, for Joan when she was... Uh, uh, she was, of course, the um, the leader of the Liberal Party, as it was then. We didn't have a combined uh, conservative side of politics. We only had the Liberals and the Nationals in those days. And I came down to work for Joan, who was the leader of the Liberal Party, the junior coalition partner. And uh, and I'd been working for her for a while. And, um, well, we were looking for a place to, to, to put down our roots. And um, we'd had a place in Brisbane. And it wasn't so good. You know, I didn't like it there. Uh, maybe it's the Rocky boy coming out in me. I found myself in Ipswich and that was the place uh, that I put down the roots. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, the seat of Blair was created in 1998 and part of that was the seat of Oxley with the boundaries being redrawn. You were elected before social media. So for that campaign in 1998, can you just give us a little bit of an insight into the main elements of your campaign? And I'm thinking straight up there was a lot of door knocking. Oh, Alan, uh, 1998, in the seat of Blair, there was only one issue, Pauline Hanson, One Nation. That was the Pauline Hanson. Pauline Hanson had been the member for Oxley. She'd been elected because she'd been a Liberal and got chucked out of the party after the um, nominations had closed. And so she had no opponents from right and she collected all the protest votes from the left. And so she'd been elected in 1996 to the seat of Oxley. Oxley got divided in two then, and the most prospective thing for her was clearly to run in Blair, which which included much more of the rural area 
than Oxley, which was tended to be more obvious Labor country in towards in heading towards Brisbane. And she uh, she thought she had that on a plate, and um, well, I defeated her. Apart from the anti. Hanson sentiment that must have been floating around. What else did you do in your campaign to raise your profile? Well, um, it didn't take much, let me tell you, Alan, because guns, you know, we'd had the Port Arthur, Port Arthur massacre. Of course. Mm. And um, in the wake of that, John Howard had made the very courageous decisions he'd made. And, uh, you know, so going, I was going around all the, all the local shows, you know, I'd set up a, set up a card table sit there and talk to everyone uh, from daylight till after dusk um, every day of those shows. And, uh, of course, a big issue there was, you know, guns. And I found, you know, much as it was sort of touted that, you know, people in that in that country area were upset that they'd had the guns taken off them, I, I generally found if there was a, a, a man and a woman, they'd come up to me and they'd say, you know, the bloke would say, I'm not happy with you, you're taking our guns away. And I talked to him for a while about all of that and the very valid reasons why the government was taking the decision that it was doing. And uh, I, and then I'd say to the lady, um, and what do you think, ma'am? And she'd say, oh, I think it's a good thing. Uh-huh. Invariably. There was a very, you know, uh, I mean, I think it was, it wasn't just, that's, that's oversimplifying it, Alan, but yeah. that was a very big issue. And, and I found, though, that instead of just... Um, you know, one of the big temptations in politics is always to agree with the last person you spoke to, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I just found I didn't have to do that because people from both sides could see the, the burning problem which had manifested itself in that Port Arthur, that, that horror at Port Arthur. And you could still, you could easily, uh, you know, you could put your case and people would give it a good, solid hearing. So anyway, look, that that was a, a very strong issue. Um, but of course, with Hanson um, and and the the incredible hysteria and everything that was surrounding her at the moment, at that time, I mean, um, someone made a a rap song about her. You yes, know? that's and, right. And, and yes, it, it was Pauline Pants <laughs> down. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's and, and they had all this. There was just it was just wall to wall obsession with Hansonism from the start, mm. and so often um, community organisations and things would invite her to come around and speak, and of course they'd always invite uh, her opponents, and I would go along there, and I found those to be very engaging things, and people um, weren't so silly as to simply adopt or or just listen to the kind of popularistic kind of mouthings that tended to come from Hanson and that side of things at that time they would you know give you a fair hearing and I think I think I won more more points than I lost in those occasions and um, so we did all that sort of thing we also um, oh, I remember I worked I worked for a whole day uh, in the pub at um, <laughs> sounds like a tough job <laughs> yeah in the in the pub up the road um, uh, uh, in a pub north of Esk Right, and I sat there in the bar all day, and um, and people came because you know the public had sort of said to me, I went in there, and the public had said, oh, you know, you you should hear the things I hear in here. I said, okay, right, I'll sit here, I'll hear everything yep. what people have to say. Yep. Well, you did. It was it. an interesting time, an interesting <laughs> way of doing things. Well, history shows that you won in 1998, and in your first speech in Parliament, you were given the great honour to reply to the Governor-General's speech. How did that 
come about for a first-term MP? Politics always comes down to numbers, Alan. <laughs> there were many new Labor MPs elected in 1998. There were very few Liberal MPs elected new in 1998. There was me, there was uh, Ian McFarlane, and there was Julie Bishop. Uh, there was, I think, Mal Washer. I think he was also in 1998. But there were very few people from from the Liberal side of politics uh, who were elected, and so the choice for the government as to who was going to respond, because of course it always comes down to a government MP mm-hmm. uh, to respond to the governor, because the the government has that choice to make that response, um, and they chose me. Uh, I think it was because I'd rushed in and got my speech already. <laughs> I was banging on the door saying, "Hey, I'm ready to go in my oh. first speech." <laughs> yeah, squeaky wheel theory. That's good. That's good. Look, in that yeah. same speech, you also acknowledged receiving support during your campaign from both sides of politics, from the late Bill Gunn and Billy Hayden. Uh, yeah. Do you think that support helped you get over the line, apart from the anti-Hanson sentiment? It was a part of the same thing. I mean, the reason why they were getting behind me so strongly. Um, was because of concern about Hansonism at that time. Right. Um, and they, well, I just, it wasn't the only thing. Of course, it was my sheer brilliance and, uh, <laughs> and, and wonderful candidacy, Alan. Yes, um, of course. But, but there was a real horror at um, the idea of some of the Hanson platform. Uh, and that was sort of shaking its way through the system. And so, like I said, I had. I had Bill Hayden, I had Bill Gunn, I had people who'd been (laughs) sworn enemies. Jeff Kennett flew up here and did a breakfast for me. Wow. I'd forgotten about (laughs) that too. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. In the speech, you said you intended to work closely with uh, all the local councils in Blair. Was that a fruitful relationship? Uh, It had varying degrees of success, as you may well know, um, Alan. Um, I, I did work. To, to the best of my ability with the whole lot of them, um, it sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe politics or something gave it a, an edge in some cases and maybe not in others. Um, but I found that, you know, the kind of issues that surfaced in, in those local, you know, local councils are a real melting pot, a sort of a distillation of everybody's local views. Mm. And uh, so working with them is a great way to get, get ahead um and you know if you want to put in a submission or you want to get something done it helps if everyone's singing off the same hymn sheet it really really does it puts everything um uh very clear and it helps that uh, every time you know if, you, if you're lobbying a federal minister for something it helps if when they come to town the council tells them exactly the same thing that you're telling them yeah everyone <laughs> yes yes i know what you're saying mm. <laughs> You covered many subjects in that speech, and one that stood out in my mind was a warning to Parliament to rebuild faith in Australia and democratic government. Now, fast forward to 2021, the same task, only much greater faces the USA. How do you think we're doing in Australia? That is just such a difficult question now because the whole question of social media has come into it, Alan. Um, it was a very simple kind of environment Um back in the day uh, where we had like a, like a, there was a, well, these days we'd call it the mainstream media mm-hmm. who were the gatekeepers to all media and they tended to set the agenda on everything that was going. And so you always had to be conscious of what was happening uh, in the paper or on the TV and you needed to, to tailor your own thoughts and directions um, and the way you couched your arguments to, to fit with the sorts of things that were going on there. Uh, now, of course, We've got social media, 
And um, everybody, everybody is a publisher. Everyone has the capacity to get their view out there. And so the whole range of things is um, is uh, is manifesting itself. Now, what what one of the things that concerns me about it is, unfortunately, in in you know when 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 you open your Facebook page, the, the things that tend to be more outrageous are the things that tend to draw your eye, and so there tends to be a natural uh, ability on the right of politics and on the left to polarise, so that people who are slightly right tend to get drawn off to the right by by the strong arguments that the that the more outrageous people over on the right are saying because they've got sort of the purity of their arguments out there on the right and similarly on the left. Yes. So it, it's drawing people away from the middle ground and that, I think, is the current fear. That wasn't so much of an issue then, but back in the day, there really was, I think, a more, um, you know, we were more aware of the need to work together as, manifest, as as demonstrated, for example, by what I had to say about the um, about the need to work with councils. Yes. Uh, and so there was this feeling that you needed to to meet in the middle and do something. Meet in the middle and do something. That was the way to get things done, because we recognised, you know, there's there's no government that's ever been formed without really having having control of the centre. You know, you, you you need to have the ability to reflect the mainstream of Australia, not not out on some not the mainstream, wing or not the extremes. Wing. Not the extremes. Mm, that's right. Mm. Um, and those, and, and in those days, so the system used to draw the people from the extremes in towards the middle to meet. And uh, now it seems to be going the other way. And and I think people are only just starting to come to grips with that now and start to understand more of that and be a lot less naive. In I think the way you've nailed they it. React. I think you've nailed it, Cameron. A lot less naive about what they see and hear on social media. Moving on to another uh, angle. Uh, of discussion about politics in general, the often cited public perception is that politicians are lazy or on a gravy train. Now, from people I've known from all sides over several decades, I'd say that's clearly not true. But how tough is it in public office? One of the first people who sort of gave me some pointers about this was Vince Lester. You know, the Vince yeah, Lester, oh, Vince, who was the yes. member for Keppel, and yep. he was... Uh, anyway, uh, you know, uh, Joanne Miller was once his electorate secretary, Wow. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> so that's just something to put into your pipe and smoke. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, actually, so Vince Lester said to me, politics is is a marathon, not a sprint. If yep. you try to sprint everywhere, you will knock yourself out and it, it, and it won't get you anywhere. You've got to treat everything as a long-term thing and you've got to give yourself time to um, – Basically, he was just saying, don't go to every dogfight. Don't go to everything that moves. Don't be at the opening every envelope. Don't travel thousands of miles up and down every every week just so you can try and be in touch with every single meeting that's occurring. So what did I do? I did exactly the opposite and tried to attend every single meeting. <laughs> yeah, and I think every politician thinks, well, I've yes. got to be better than everybody else. Yep. I, you know, because I owe it to people. I've been elected. I've been given this tremendous honour, and honestly, they do, with some exceptions, I suppose. But They're generally, always, people always go exceptions. In there, yeah. yeah, people. people you're about to say there, people go in well intentioned. They they do. They all mm. go in for good reasons. You know, and and I know in my case, I really had this idea that you know um, we could achieve a lot more. There could be a lot more done. Um, and off I went, and I set out to do it, and I. And, and I really 
you know, so so you become your own taskmaster. And um, honestly, there's many people in politics who are just working way too many hours. And and let's not, you know, the people who try to equate politician uh, being a politician with being a job, it's just wrong. That's not right. We choose politicians to represent us in decision making at the highest levels in our country. We also choose politicians to represent us at the highest level in our local area, on the council or at the state level. But yes. but but it's not a job. It is it is a it is where you've been called, you've been designated, you've been given that obligation and that responsibility. And so the most important thing you've got to be able to do is explain yourself to people. If you're choosing to go down a particular path, some people may not agree with you. Some people may do. So you'll get all kinds of varying mail from out of your own electorate. I mean, the whole electorate is not unified on things. They'll come at you from a whole lot of different angles. The main thing is you've got to account for yourself and why you're doing particular things. Um, but I, I, I just think that, um, uh, you know, and of course the ones who aren't satisfied often can never be satisfied and they will, uh, you know, blackguard you mercilessly. Yes. Um, uh, no matter how hard you try. Coming with the Territory, especially being in federal parliament, there's a lot of travel, and travel might seem glamorous if you don't do it a lot, but I know the shine wears off very quickly. Uh, and all that travel and being away, it must take a toll on your family, Cameron. Oh, it is. It's, it is difficult. Uh, Alan, it is, um, you know, going off to Canberra for a couple of weeks at a time um, and leaving uh, leaving my wife and and um, the young family. Uh, you know, kids still have to go to school. It's 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 tremendously um, demanding for them, and and it's also, you know, like so. My wife winds up down the supermarket, and the next minute, somebody who knows that she's my wife starts attacking her about some political issue she knows nothing about. You yeah. know, it, it could be, it's just terrible for those people because it's not like they can sort of say, oh, yeah, I'll change it to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, I've heard of those stories elsewhere. Yes, it's not, it's, some people just don't think before they speak. Well, you know, it's, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, it, was, it was very demanding and, um, you know, look, I also, I, I was I was fortunate enough to go and see some parts of the world. Uh, you know, I went off to Iraq um, during the Iraq conflict and, you know, th that gives you a good understanding of issues in places like that. I went to Central uh, Central Europe um, where they were still, you know, well, you wouldn't say emerging, but still developing on from the shadow of communism, those sorts of things in, yes. in um, places like... Um, uh, Croatia and uh, Czech Republic and those sorts of places, and we, we Poland, you know, and we went to those, and we were looking at trade and all those sorts of things, and you know, you get a good understanding about what makes those countries tick, and you can see things that reflect on your own country. Do you know, Alan? Look, I mean, I used to think we had a terrible road toll in Australia. I used to think it was terrible, and we'd hear it all on the radio all the time. We've got a terrible road, road toll. It's bad. But and I used to think, go, I used to sing that song and go along with it until I went to Poland, which had the same sort of population as Australia at that time. But their road network was the most shocking disaster you've ever seen. 
and their road toll was about 15 times ours. Unbelievable. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I really need to get out more, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, okay, it's bad. Any life lost is bad. But over there they had massive highway, ma- massive divided highways built um, to relo- relocate tanks in the age of, uh, of uh, communism, you know, they, they, they had to move tanks backwards mm-hmm. and forwards across Central Europe. And these, ro- these roads, these big divided highways were made totally for that, but they had no exits or entrances. Oh, my and goodness. And so you had, when we were over there, we were driving along in the little microbus sort of thing, and here's this um, B-double doing a U-turn across four lanes of traffic. Now, you were fortunate to be on the government side during your three terms. What were yes. your priorities for the electorate, and what were your proudest achievements? You know, it's just such a long list of things. And one of the difficulties with the seat of Blair transformed itself so much over that time. In the three terms um, that I served, we we had boundary changes every time. And when I when I first um, was elected, Joby Alke-Peterson was one of my constituents because the electorate went right the way north of Kingaroy. Mm-hmm. By the time uh, I left, it was basically, uh, it was simply the, a bit of the Brisbane Valley and, um, and uh, you know, Ipswich uh, itself. And that was about all. Now, you know, so there was a big change over that period. And so... You know, for example, there were priorities like, particularly in the early days, we um, we built a whole complete abattoir basically at um, at Kingaroy, the Swickers Abattoir up there, and um, it uh, you know expanded it to do. It was a little local thing, and it, we expanded it to do export pork shipments, and uh, you know that was a huge job opportunity, job generator locally up there. That was a huge thing, and we we you know, spent a lot of time as a federal government in those days with unemployment had been very high and we were getting it down and that was one of the sorts of things we did. But there was a range of things, you know, wastewater, the the, the opportunity, you know, when Peter Beattie started talking about taking wastewater and shipping it out, you know, obviously we had to get that into the Lockyer Valley, which is the, you know, the, the, the food bowl for well, from a lot of Asia, really. Yes, exactly. Queensland, mm. you know, it's a huge generator of fresh produce. And if we could get that water there, of course, it's a big thing. So we were onto that and we were working very hard on all of that. Um, in the middle of all that, the Ipswich motorway emerged. And, um, you know, I took a very strong stance that um, we shouldn't be building the road while we're driving on it. Um, and, uh, you know, so I took a, I took a different view to everybody else and decided we needed two roads, not one, and pursued that and got the full support of the Howard government for that. So there were a lot of those sorts of local things. There was there's Amberley Air Force Base and, you know, changing it from what was really just a kind of a secondary um, – uh, well, it wasn't secondary, but it was a um, – you know, it was just, it was just a base – uh, for their final events purely, well, it's become a kind of a, a massive hub, not just for Air Force, but for all defence. Army and logistics. It's, well, you yeah, could legitimately call it a super base on Australian yes, terms. Yes. Mm. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, that emerged over that period and getting that done. I mean, one of the things I think is a disappointment is, you know, these days when they talk about aerospace, um, they make out that the hub for aerospace is Brisbane. Well, They've actually taken away from Ipswich. They've subtracted from Ipswich in relation to that, and I'm very disappointed in that. We should be having much more 
defence-related, um, you know, aerospace technology. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Believe you me, there's a lot of secret sort of secret squirrel stuff going on out there. Um, but there can be could be so much more, and it would make, in my view, a lot more sense to be doing that out at Amberley. You rode out of Blair on the Kevin 07 wave. It can't be easy waking up the next day after a defeat. What was, what was facing you at the time and what were you thinking? Oh, well, it was just gutting. Um, Alan was just totally gutting. It, it was uh, the worst, um, you know, just the worst possible outcome because we had, we'd won the whole argument, you know, that, that motorway argument was just so torrid and we'd assembled four billion dollars of funding to deliver a a whole new motorway all this sort of stuff that was going to be it would have enabled b triples to go all the way to the port of brisbane so 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 all the unloading and loading that goes on just west of toowoomba would not have needed to happen have happened if we'd completed that goodna bypass but that that completely separate to the whole idea of separating um, truck transport on on one highway from local commuters on the other. Once you dusted yourself off, where did your career take you then? I had spent quite a lot of time working as an advisor uh, for uh, people in politics. You know, I'd, I'd been uh, chief of staff or principal private secretary to Joan Sheldon when she was the treasurer and wrote all the budget speeches and things in that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, had a lot to do with, uh, for example, you know, when we privatised Suncorp Metway, created Suncorp Metway. Yeah. That was an, an incredible achievement uh, of the um, of the Borbidge government. So I had that in my in my background, and, and I really, one of the things that was burning me at the time that, um, you know, that I <laughs> was unceremoniously evicted uh, from the seat of Blair uh, <laughs> was the need to do something about... Um, amalgamating the two conservative parties in Queensland. I'd, I'd gone out on a limb. I'd been fighting with John Howard and other people in Canberra about the need to do that because although the coalition's a very successful thing federally, it just could not work at the state level when you had the Liberal Party as the junior coalition partner. It just couldn't work. And the Labor Party knew that, and that was why they'd introduced a system of voting called optional preferential voting which basically meant that the it you could have put in brackets after that uh, the Liberal and National parties will never win, right? <laughs> um, because it just couldn't. And the only way we could hope to to put ourselves on an even footing with the Labor Party was to amalgamate. And so I went into a, a huge, uh, you know, I, I even stood as a president of the Liberal Party for a while to get that point across. But of course. One of the big allies, or probably the, you know, one of the people I was trying seeking to ally with, was Lawrence Springborg. So I had tremendous respect for Lawrence, who'd seen this all the way along, who was the uh, person most in the vanguard of the battle uh, to amalgamate the two parties. And uh, so I went to work for him as a uh, as a policy advisor. And in the lead up to two th- the two thousand and nine election, I I. It was my job to assemble all the policies of the LNP 
and to put them into a, um, you know, and to do all the costings and all that sort of thing. So that was a huge job. A and big job. I, I just went mm. on from there to work. Um, uh, when, when Lawrence later, oh, I worked for the Queensland Country Life as a journalist after that, after, you know, after we'd been defeated in 2009 and went off to work for the Queensland Country Life. Then I came back and worked for Lawrence when he was the health minister. And that was a tremendous privilege and a, a very interesting time, very challenging, but I'm still very, very proud of the achievements uh, that Lawrence um, uh, made in relation to restoring some of the capacity of the health system after that terrible health payroll debacle. Well, that's that's a whole subject for another day. Cameron, you've chosen to remain an Ipswich resident, which is a wonderful thing. So the city is well and truly your home now. So what's taking up your time these days? Well, Alan, I'm um, I'm basically retired. I'm a journalist, right, and a and, and a political person who uh, does media and and policy advice for politicians. Um, that's uh, I'm getting on in in the tooth these days. I'm, I mean, I've 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 hit the six zero mark. I mean, that's not a very old age, but I have. It is when you're applying for a job. <laughs> uh, that's precisely right, and you know, and at the same time, journalism has been totally gutted and torn apart it has mm. um by uh, by the impact of um of social media and you know all of the places where i'd worked you know the the rockhampton morning bulletin it doesn't exist anymore the glasden observer doesn't exist anymore the queensland times well it, you know they sort of do they, in a they sort exist of way. online yes yeah, yeah online yeah, they yeah. do um but you know you know so the majority of those jobs and those places is tremendous um employment opportunities for journalists is gone um, and those that remain, those papers and, and uh, news organisations that remain are struggling to survive and so they just can't employ people and so jobs have been going backwards and I feel very sorry for anyone out there who's a journalist, particularly if you're getting older. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's a tough world. and uh, Anyway, so what I've been doing is just um, uh, basically being retired Uh I've been doing a lot of 3D printing, uh, Alan. I okay. find that's getting into the technology. That's good to hear. Interesting and challenging yep. field, yep. and huge potential of that. I've been doing a lot of that. I've also, um, well, I've taken a part-time job pumping gas. So uh, you know, work, work in a garage on the night shift and stack the shelves. Why not? It's a good opportunity to talk to people. Keeps you keeps you busy. That's right, Cameron Thompson. Oh. That's been a fascinating snapshot uh, of your life from school days through the politics up until now. So I really appreciate you talking with Ipswich today. Thank you very much, Alan. All the best to you and uh, and to your podcast. I hope it goes really really well. Thank you. Ipswich Today is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. This podcast is also listener-supported. Please make a once-only gift or regular donation to help keep it online. Just go to ipswichtoday.com.au and click the Donate button at the bottom of the page. You can subscribe for free and share this podcast from your favourite app, including iHeartRadio, or play Ipswich Today from your smart speaker. Music is supplied by Purple Planet Music. This is Alan Roebuck. Thanks for listening.
Enjoying Ipswich today? Please share the love on your socials.